0: Last week, we talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, about how those four horsemen are now riding throughout the earth, bringing bringing sadness and sorrow, riding through the earth, bringing spiritual confusion and relational conflict and economic hardship and disease uh, and death, separation from loved ones, which is an unnatural thing, and, and that touches everybody. Uh, we started, uh, last week talked about some of the of the hope that uh, is in that, but today really God starts to uh, answer that question a little bit better. What it is, uh, in this passage God is going to begin to comfort us by showing us and reminding us really what's eternal and what is temporary so that we can set our hopes on the right things, amen. So would you please stand if you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 Through 17, this is a vision of Jesus in heaven opening up these seals of the scroll that God has given him. And when he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb." For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So last week, a couple weeks ago, the church was rocked by the news of uh, the death of a pastor. It's a pastor named uh, Jared Wilson who... Several people in our congregation knew him. He's a super well-connected guy. He was a pastor at a church up in Riverside. Pastor, author, mental health advocate, struggled with depression, and ended up committing suicide and just rocked the church. You, know, you read about it, and um, lots of people were talking about it. Um, he left behind a young wife and, and young kids, and, uh, and it, just, it just rocks you because you think, how could that possibly happen? And he's not the only one. A week prior to that, another pastor from Oceanside had just moved to Austin, Texas to get a fresh start, also with a young wife. And he got there and was, again, felt trapped in some awful way that we can't imagine and ended up killing himself as well. Now, just generally, anybody would just be like, wow, how could that happen? How could that happen with pastors? Uh, it's just, that's just not supposed to be. How could a pastor get so despondent that they would end up taking their own lives? Um, for pastors, it's especially rocking. If it was, you know, anybody that you're really closely related to or that you share experiences or work with, it really hits you even closer to home and you start, you worry, you're afraid. You're like, wow, could that happen to me? Um, I am I am not suicidal. And this last week, Nisa's been like checking in on me every couple of days, like, how upset are you right now? I am not suicidal, but i can I can understand it. I can sympathize with those guys. I, in the, there's all sorts of unique pressures in pastoral ministry, especially church planning, where you can be very tempted to give even more than you actually have out in the care of people and come up short and have people upset with you and 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 feel like there's hostility and end up feeling just isolated, and completely alone, uh, and you get, it's real easy to get to the point where you can cry out to God, how long, oh sovereign Lord, holy and true, is this going to go on? I don't know if I can make it through another day. And it's not just pastors, right? I mean, obviously mental illness and depression, which is a very real thing, have had a big part in those cases, uh, but it's not just pastors. There is... Um, We at our community group on Friday night, uh, in our discussion about the sermon from last week, we were were talking about how it is in in the West, we're so tempted to believe that because we're materially prosperous, everything should be okay, and yet at the same time, we're recognizing that as Western culture slowly just disintegrates all around us, there seems to be bubbling up from out of that destruction and out of that disintegration, this low-level lament uh, that's like background noise. Uh, it's uh, it's bubbling up from the surface, almost like uh, it, and we get used to it, almost like being in the flight path. You hear the airplanes, and then all of a sudden you don't. In the middle of this sermon, there's going to be five airplanes that fly over the top of this building. You may hear them. You may not. I don't hear them anymore. But the same thing is true with that low-level lament of background noise of sadness uh, that exists because We live in a fallen world. And every so often, that low-level lament flares up like a sun flare into real crisis in life. Whether it's, and, uh, uh, and why is that? From the horseman. You get touched by spiritual confusion. You get touched by relational conflict and the emotional pain that follows that. You get touched by financial hardship and insecurity Uh, You get touched by disease. Uh, You get touched by getting older. You get touched by the death of a loved one or the fear of your own imminent death. And it's real easy for any of us in certain moments of life to cry out to God and say, hey, what are you doing? I don't know how much more this I can deal with. I'm not sure if I can make it through another day. That's the great tribulation. And it it touches everybody. Anytime you get to the end of your rope, anytime you can't understand why everything has to be so dang hard, when you feel like giving up and you feel like you just can't make it through another day, that's the great tribulation. And it touches everybody. Nobody escapes. And so the question is really, is God silent in all this? What does God say to us in this? And in this passage, he starts to give us the answer to it. I'm really looking forward to next week because next week he just drops the hammer on the gas of gospel and grace uh, and shows us things that are almost, you would not believe they were true unless they were clear in scripture. So hold out for that. But today he starts to answer that question. And the answer is is this. And this is the big idea of the passage, that whenever you hit that point, when you're not sure if you can make it another day, God calls you to rest in the righteousness of Jesus and to reflect on the fate of the world. To rest in the righteousness of Jesus and to reflect on the fate of the world. So let's look at that one part uh, at a time. First, when you're not sure you can make it through another day. There is a, uh, um, in Acts chapter 10, there's a story where Peter is meditating on the roof and of, of uh, in, in Joppa, in this house that he's staying in, the apostle Peter. And he goes into a, he, he goes into a trance and has this vision that God is, there's a sheet that's descending from heaven and on this sheet are all different kinds of animals that were forbidden by the Jewish law to eat. You could not eat mice, you couldn't eat snakes, you couldn't eat you know all sorts of animals. And here on this sheet were not only clean animals, but also unclean animals. And as the sheet lowers down, God says to Peter, Peter, kill and eat, meaning that, these, you know, these, th- th- that restriction is, is gone. Those were in the Old Testament, those holiness codes were symbolic, and now in the new covenant, now that Christ has come, you can eat all food and give thanks to God. Right, here's the thing. Here's the point. Why am I telling you this story? Because as the sheet is being lowered, the, the, the gospel, uh, the, the book of Acts just talks about this sheet being lowered. There's a textual variant. A textual variant means uh, a, a, a There's old manuscripts that we have that have a different reading or extra words in that passage. And the extra words in this variant reading show this sheet um, being held up on the four corners with hooks like a cargo net. But that's not what the text says. The text just says the sheet is being lowered onto the earth. And yet there's this scribe out there somewhere who's like, It added the idea of hooks through the corners of the sheets, and the sheet pulled up like a cargo net coming off a ship that's just full of, like, bleeding animals coming down to the ground. Now, why did he make that change to the text? Was there any exegetical reason? Was there any real good reason to make the change? No, there wasn't any good reason. He just, in his mind, read that and said, a sheet can't just drop to the earth It has to be like a cargo net, and so he added that to it. What did he do? He added into the vision the expectation that the vision would have to conform to the laws of physics as we know it in our world. And that is always the temptation of what we do when we approach the visions and Revelation. We read them and expect them to fulfill and be very literal and fulfill exactly uh, all of the physical properties and characteristics of our physical world, and that's not true. It's not how visions work. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because I have to prove something to be true to you right at the outset about who these people are uh, in, uh who these people are who are underneath the throne of God. Uh, so let's remember, this is a symbolic vision, The symbolic vision is meant to teach us principles and patterns of spiritual warfare that we are engaged in right now. Uh, And the visions don't always follow a literal translation into our world. Sometimes they're very, very different. For example, for example, in the real world, there's often not a lot of visible difference between the saints uh, and the unbelievers, right? There's a lot of bad in the church. There's a lot of good in the world. A lot of individual believers can have a lot of sin, and, and unbelievers can have a lot of virtue. However, that's not how it's presented in Revelation. In Revelation, there are two groups of people. There are one group of people called the earth dwellers, and they are characteristic of all the people who are, are not believers in Jesus, and they are always pictured as straight-up pure, God-hating evil all the time clenching their fists, cursing God, Uh, uh, no remorse, having parties at the death of the saints. They are always pictured as pure, unadulterated evil. That's how the vision presents them. Conversely, the other group of people are the saints, those who believe in Jesus, and they are always presented in Revelation, in the visions, as pure, as holy, as dressed in white, they're really uh, pictured as, in, in a lot of sense, uh, as the Old Testament concept of the Nazarite, who was a perfect and pure, uh, you know, sinless, or, or abstained from all sorts of earthly pleasure. The saints in the revelation are even, go, it goes so far in the vision as to present all the saints as virgins, pure dressed in white. And it even goes as far as to present all the saints as martyrs. Now, why is that? Because all saints go through the tribulation. All saints are touched by the spirit war. Uh, Every Christian, says Jesus, picks up their cross and dies and suffers under under the influence and under the, the catastrophe of the world. And so because of that, Revelation pictures the saints, all of us, in the terms of pure, holy, virgin martyrs. (laughs) Not that that's true of you, (laughs) but in the book of Revelation, it sees us through the righteousness of Jesus in our end state, and it presents us as that. So listen again. Listen again to this first couple of verses talking about these people. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You know who those people are? You know I'm convinced they are after meditating on this all week? That is the collective cry of lament and woe issued forth from all the saints who have gone through and are going through the tribulation. That's us. Whenever you hit that wall and you think, I cannot do this another day, that's your voice. Whenever you are just overwhelmed by trouble, you don't know how you're gonna make it to the end of the month, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You don't know how you're ever going to get out of debt. You don't know ever how the emotional suffering you're going through because of the relationships of people that you love have been broken and you're separated from them. And you just cry out to God, what are you doing, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? How long is this going to go on? Every time we hit that point, there's a picture of that collective cry of lament. How long, oh Lord? How long? How long is this going to go on? How long is that low-level lament going to buzz in the background, flaring out at inopportune moments, and bring me into a point of trouble and despair? It's us. Now, why would that be included in here? Why is God highlighting this? There's probably a lot of reasons, but the one one big reason is this, is that God wants us to know it's okay to express our lament to him. It's okay. God knows that everyone is going to be touched by the collateral damage of the spirit war. Everyone is going to be touched by the four horsemen, and he wants us to know that it is okay for us to cry out to him in honesty, not in malice or anger, but to cry out, God, how long are you going to do this? How long is this going to go on? There I'm reading this book right now called emotionally healthy spirituality it's by the guy who wrote the emotionally healthy church there's <laughs> a guy named uh, Pete Scarsese I believe his name is he wrote this book called the emotionally healthy church uh about about and it's all basically about pastors and ministers and ministry leaders who chased the dream of great ministry so far that they like destroyed their families and so while we were dating, Nisa used to come, we, she would read to me a chapter at a time out of this book and, and be like, I want you to understand I am not going to be ministry widow. And it was super helpful. But well, he also wrote this book that's called spiritually healthy or uh, um, emotionally healthy spirituality. And the big idea, the big idea of the book is this, is that there tends to be a, a tendency of the church, especially the American church, is for us to try to put lament off into the corner, to not to create a space for it. Now we need to recognize that there, God has given us a lot of joy, and there are a lot of there's a lot of rejoicing in this life, and a lot of blessing that He has given us. But there is also times of deep lament, and it touches everybody. And there is a tendency in the church To not want to talk about that or to stuff it or to put it aside. Uh, And that is unhealthy. That's the big point of his book: is that any spirituality that forces you to put on the I'm on fire for Jesus phase 24-7 is really only suited for people on the manic swing of bipolar disease and/or sociopaths. And that's not good. And so God allows our lament. He expects it, he anticipates it for those seasons of life when it flares up. And does he answer us? Does he have anything to say about that? What is his answer? What's his response? What's his comfort to us? The first thing he says is that we should rest in the righteousness of Jesus second part, rest in the righteousness of Jesus. I remember uh, one day when I was about halfway through seminary in the midst of finals week, it was about 3.30 a.m. I was clearly in one of those awful moments where I was calling out, how long, oh Lord, how long will this suffering continue? And I I stumbled across, so I I was, of course, surfing the internet rather than actually doing studying, and I stumbled across this picture of this place called Lake Louise. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's in, it's in the Canadian Rockies. It's in uh, Banff National Park. It is this pristine, glacier-fed mountain lake in between these you know, ten and 12,000-foot peaks. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, just the fog of seminary just kind of cleared away for a moment, and it was like I was staring into paradise. What is this place? (laughs) What is this place? I must see it. And uh, long story short, Nisa decided that as my present for seminary, our graduating seminary, we were going to go to Lake Louise. And so we took a three-week trip, and we went to Lake Louise. And I'll tell you, what's the point? The point of the story is this, that in those last months of seminary, Man, in those last months of seminary, even the pressure of the last final semester and trying to get, get, uh, get done with school, there was nothing that could bother me. You know why? Because that vacation was booked, it was paid for, and all we had to do was get done and get you know, on the plane and go. And so no matter what happened, I was like, you know, and no matter what you did, no matter what awful thing happened, I was like, oh, whatever, I'm going to Lake Louise in three weeks. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had something like that planned out that you were super excited about that was so, it was just gonna be so great that leading up to it, nothing could bother you. It was just everything, no matter what happened, just rolled off your back, because you're like, I don't care about that. In three weeks, I'm out of here. I'm gonna be in Lake Louise. That uh, is what God is assuring us of right here. What if the vacation wasn't three weeks? What if it wasn't even at a place as beautiful as the Canadian Rockies? What if it was in the eternal realms of heaven? And what if it was forever? How much could roll off your back then? Listen. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There's some there's some significant imagery in that picture. The first is they're given a white robe. It's really a, a picture of a flowing white robe. And the bigger part of that is uh, is the idea of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, there's a constant theme from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when God sacrifices an animal and then clothes Adam and Eve in the skins of that animal to teach them from the very beginning that they would be saved by the death of someone on their behalf and then they would be clothed uh, in what that death produced or, or, or they would be clothed in righteousness. And then all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, talk about this concept of being clothed in righteousness, putting it on like a, like a robe. being given to you and putting it on like a robe and then God seeing us and treating us as if we were as righteous as the clothing we were wearing. Uh, All the way up through Galatians, the apostle Paul says straight up, all those who were baptized into Jesus have been clothed with Christ. It's his picture uh, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and wiped the sin record out, but that's not all he did. He also when we believe in him, he gives us credit for his perfect righteousness. And we put that on like a robe. And that's how God sees us. Uh, and so, by being given these white robes, it's God, being, it's God saying, not only are you given the righteousness of Jesus, not only are you going to be made really righteous so that you, you, you will be able to be righteous in the, in the, in the new world, but it's a guarant- it guarantees our access into heaven. It's a guarantee that the vacation is gonna happen, that it's better than anything we can imagine, uh, and that it's gonna last forever. The, the, the smaller significance of that robe is that that robe, the, the, that word for robe, long flowing white robe, is a very special kind of robe that was only worn in that culture for people of very high social status that worked in very dignified positions. It's even the young man who appeared in the tomb of Jesus and told the apostle or the disciples what had happened was wearing that same kind of robe. It's a marker, a sign that you belong to the heavenly society, to the royal court of the heavenly realm, and do not any longer belong to this world. It's the promise that God gives us. Uh, and that's what God calls us to rest in, to stop striving, worrying, being anxious about whether or not you're going to pull it off, but to rest in the fact that God has guaranteed, he has booked our flights, it's going to happen, and all we have to do is rest in Christ's righteousness and await the time we get on the plane and the vacation starts. What could roll off your back if you knew that was true? If we really believed that was true, the little things that happen on earth, even the big things that happen in the world, don't hit you as hard. They just can't. They can't hit you as hard because you're like, I'm out of here. 20 years, I'll be in heaven. Whatever. Now, let me, let's get real. I mean, when things hit you, they hit you and you lament. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever lament, but, you know, Paul talks about the Christian life in the, with this tension of we are always sorrowful yet rejoicing. It's the duality of the Christian life. We acknowledge our lament. We don't stuff it. We don't try to pretend it's not happening. We live in a fallen and cursed world. and The horsemen have touched you and will touch you for the rest of your life, and yet at the same time that we acknowledge our lament, we acknowledge that that is temporary. That is not the end of the story. That is a flesh wound. The true about us is where we truly belong. That we have been dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus in the heavenly court. Those are our true people. That's our true home. And we are just moving through this world and it's gonna be short. Now, sometimes, man, I, I, I've been counseling someone or a dear friend, and one time I was counseling a dear friend about this stuff and trying to encourage her in the midst of real economic hardship, financial hardship, and personal conflict. And I was telling her all this about the hope that we have in heaven and the righteousness of Christ and what we're going to have in Jesus in the future, and she literally just, like, rolled her eyes at me. <laughs> like, Why? Because she was so bound up in the temporary. She was so bound up by the the suffering, the pain she was feeling in the world right now. So what this tells us to do, what this helps us do more than anything else is to break the enchantment that this is the real world, because it's not. This is a temporary world that's going to turn to dust. It's going to disintegrate in a minute. What's real is what we can't see What's real is who we truly belong to and where we truly belong. And that is our hope. And so this is God is encouraging us by resting in that. He's saying, don't get sucked in to the belief that this is the real, it's not. This is the temporary. This is the pregame show. This is the waiting room. Focus your hopes on the reality, rest in that. The second thing he tells us to do, which is third point is to reflect on the fate of the wicked. Uh, Another big news story over the last couple of months, story of a man named Jeffrey Epstein, who was one of the most fabulously wealthy men in the world, who uh, was found out to be in and discovered to be, everybody knew this for a long time, but finally was brought to trial a second time on human trafficking charges, and some of the worst human trafficking charges that you can imagine, uh, that he uh, would run this service for him and his very wealthy friends. And he got—he was tried once and, and escaped justice. And everybody was like, well, if you're rich and powerful, you don't ever have to serve justice. And then they came after him again. And then within a couple of weeks, he was dead in his jail sale. It all you know, even though he was one of the most wealthy and powerful men in the world, it all crumbled around him in a matter of weeks, and it's the kind of story it's, a, it's kind of nightmare story for the super rich and powerful that you think you're so protected by your wealth and your fame and your status uh, and your connections and your relationships that nothing bad could ever happen to you. Uh, and you can't even, you know, i, I got to imagine, you can't even imagine living life as a regular person or as, a, a, as a, in poverty or in jail. And then you see someone just like you that it happens to and it freaks you out. It's a nightmare scenario. And maybe it's not even legal trouble. Maybe it's the, the, the stock market goes south. People jump out of buildings. Or maybe it's the housing bubble explodes. Maybe it's the business fails. Whenever, whenever our trust in the temporary is shaken, it causes anxiety. Well, here's the thing. Uh, a lot of people might take comfort in saying, well, that's not gonna happen to me. It's just Jeffrey Epstein. But listen to what God says. This is verses 12 through 17. And when he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's all Old Testament language for judgment. Those are all symbolic terms for the disillusion of the world. It's really symbolic terms for theophany. Theophany is when God comes and his presence is, comes and it's so real and there that the material world starts to disintegrate in his presence because he has come in judgment. And so the reality check is, it's not one or two, it's not just Jeffrey Epstein, it's not this poor misfortunate soul who happens to make the wrong investments, it's everybody outside of Christ is going to be shaken in that same way. That's the reality of temporary, of the world. The reality for the earth dwellers Not the saints, but the earth dwellers who put their hope in this world and show their hope off on Instagram. The fate of the earth dwellers is though, although they may be on the right side of history, they will be on the wrong side of eternity. Just like it or not, a day is coming when God is going to show up present. Jesus is going to show up present and creation 1.0 is going to be wiped and creation 2.0 is going to be loaded. And the only thing going into 2.0 are the souls of people who have trusted in Jesus and his righteousness. That's the reality check. Now, why would God ask us to reflect on this? A couple of reasons. If I get real honest with myself, a lot of the reasons why I can't rest in God's provision for me, why I can't rest in his provision for me now and his promises for the future is because I'm comparing my life to the good life and the good life as it's packaged and delivered to me uh, on social media, in marketing, Just the whole world is just crushing in upon us saying, this is what makes happiness. This is what the good life is. And it's not, you know what it is? It's not even so much the stuff. It's the recognition that I got the stuff. Maybe that's not true for you, but that's definitely true for me. Stuff, nah, I like nice stuff. But even so, more than that, it's the temptation to be recognized as successful in the eyes of the world. And the crushing blow that comes when I feel like I'm not measuring up to that. And when I see everybody's perfectly cultured life on Instagram and Facebook of their, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's my belief that I have to measure up to that version of the good life that causes a lot of my anxiety. And causes me to not be able to rest in Jesus and yet, there's a lot of reasons why the good life isn't so good, but one of the reasons is because it's so short. But What we have in Christ is eternal. And the other thing is when you see the wicked prosper. You see people who hate God, people who are uh, hate the church, people who are just... You see, evil, evil in the world, it seems to go unchecked. And that also brings a lot of anxiety. We talked about that at our community group on Friday too. What do you do with that? What do you do with the seemingly unchecked evil in the world and that people who are, hate God seem to be prospering and God's people seem to be suffering? Where's God in that? Why isn't he taking care of us? There was another guy a long time ago in the Old Testament who thought that same thought. Actually, he was a songwriter who worked for the temple, creating writing psalms for the temple worship in Israel. And he recounts in Psalm 73, his own personal story of how he saw the corruption of Israel and saw how people who were just hypocrites and who hated God and were evil and were getting away with all kinds of dirty stuff seemed to be prospering and were recognized and lauded by the culture, and yet the true saints and the true church was in weakness and in persecution and being in in hardship. And he was like, I got so discouraged in seeing that that I almost quit. I almost threw the whole thing away. I almost blasphemed the name of God and told everybody God must not even exist. And then he says in Psalm 73, he says this, He says, I thought that way, I was so disgusted by the seeming prosperous nature of the world and my suffering, I was so disgusted I almost quit until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The end is what we just read this creation wiped clean, new creation brought in. The good life, that's the short life. and He saw their end and in comparison to that end, he realized how much more valuable the eternal was. And what he had in Christ wasn't just blessing, but insane riches. Because when we are, we're all like trust fund babies. But it's not just money. It's not just like we have to look forward to the end of our lives where we get a ton of money. It's, it's also a trust fund of things that money can't even buy. The, the, the restoration of our bodies into forms that we can't even imagine how powerful that we might be. The, the entire cosmos and the riches therein as our inheritance along with Jesus. Uh, we're like trust fund babies, but... Uh, with a trust fund that is so over and above anything that this world could possibly even offer us, that when we compare that to anything this world has to offer, there's no comparison. And we're not shaken by this world and the way this world gets shook up because our trust fund is being kept safe for us in heaven by God. We can't lose it. We just have to trust God trust his provision, get through this world, and let the trouble roll off our back because we know pretty soon we're going to get that trust fund. Amen? So how do we respond to that concluding? It gives us a whole different perspective on the world. Rather than competing with the world for short-lived things that don't bring happiness, we can step back from that. And we can realize that we have incredible.